Welcome back, and thanks for joining me again. We have had an amazing adventure thus far, looking at the way shape appears in nature from a mathematical perspective. We have seen the world from three viewpoints. We've seen the world in shapes at our level, studying fractals and the design of snowflakes, mountain terrains, and surface reconstruction, things that, things that we can understand and appreciate. We have seen the world from a micro level in DNA structures, molecular linkages, protein folding, and string theories, a world that is far beneath us, beyond us, but yet that completely controls us and it defines us. And we've also studied things from a macro level in terms of planets and suns and black holes and even the shape of the universe itself. Now, in all of these areas of study, we have considered the interaction of mathematics and the sciences, the shapes of nature, mostly biology, chemistry, and physics. And throughout these lectures, we have seen math and the sciences push each other, where understanding nature gives more insight to math and understanding mathematics gives more insight into nature. So I ask you this question, what about math and the visual arts? Does the power of mathematics have to be restricted to the sciences? Can it not be shared with the arts? It is the blending of these two worlds, mathematics and the visual arts, that we will consider today. Now, before we begin, I want to give you two disclaimers. The first disclaimer, what does art mean? Anybody can be an artist, from performance artists to musicians to my son or daughter just drawing something on a napkin. Well, to me, I want to focus on artists that emphasize visual characteristics, sculptors, painters, designers. And those have been recognized by the artistic community. The second disclaimer I want to give is that this lecture focusing on where math and art stand today is seen from my perspective and my perspective alone. Now, I'm not an art historian, nor am I a professional artist, but I'm a mathematician who studies the world through shape. Thus, I'm extremely interested in the way the shapes of the world are portrayed by artists. Before considering how math and art are blending together today, let's begin from a historical context. Now, the Renaissance was a time which saw no polarity between the sciences and the arts. This was most seen in the works of Leonardo da Vinci, ranging from paintings and sculptures, inventions and scientific study. His works like the Mona Lisa are known worldwide, and he has works on biology, he has works on engineering. Now, Leonardo was an unparalleled genius at bringing together artistic vision and scientific study. Now, to me, here is the most important feature about him. He was not just an artist and a scientist, but he was doing cutting-edge work in engineering and in painting and in drawing and in anatomy. He was at the forefront of research in mathematics and the sciences, and at the same time was at the forefront of research in the arts. He wasn't using one for the other one in a in a haphazard and cheap manner, he was pushing the frontiers of both of them. He was not mimicking, but he was creating. Now, what about today? Well, in many ways, the worlds of math and art have grown apart. 
Now, one reason is that both of these fields have grown so much over time. Now, unlike Leonardo, no one person can grasp cutting-edge ideas in both of these fields today. Now, this is similar to what happened in mathematics after Gauss. Remember how prolific Gauss was in terms of pushing mathematics? It was so amazing that nobody after him can really understand all of the worlds of mathematics in one shot. Moreover, the perception towards these fields have also changed. Indeed, it is a common stereotype today that those who are artists are not good at math, and those who like math belong with the nerds and not the artsy crowd. Well, one field cares about pictures, the other cares about equations. If I have taught you anything over these lectures, it is that mathematics is not about numbers or equations, but ideas themselves. Indeed, I believe that we can reclaim the time of Leonardo once again, that these two worlds can once again meet in a powerful way. So let me start with the story of how I became curious about math and the visual arts. Well, my research interests have been in visualizing mathematics, trying to see things other mathematicians have not seen before. In January 1988, excuse me, in January 1998, when I was still a graduate student, I was presenting a talk about configuration spaces and their tiling by associahedra, things that we've seen earlier, showing a picture similar to this. Who was in the audience but Jim Stashev, the man who created the associahedron in the first place? I was nervous. Well, here he asked me a question during my talk, in particular about this picture, and he said, he said, look at those holes that are getting bored into your three-dimensional torus. What happens when all those holes that you're boring into it, what happens at the place of intersection? If you're standing at the place of intersection where these holes get bored in and look around, what do you see? Well, this is an absolutely fascinating question and it was a visual question. And I realized when I went back to my hotel room that night that I actually knew what the answer was completely from a visual standpoint. I looked at the notes that I had written earlier, the scribbles that I had done in order to understand the space, and I saw these pictures. What you see when you're standing at the intersection of those holes is something like, that looks like this. Now, if I take this image and, and flatten it, you get an object that looks just like this. And another way of drawing this object is this. And notice, we have seen this before. This is a world tiled by associahedra, it's tiled by pentagons. Just like the original object was tiled by three-dimensional associahedra, this world is tiled by two-dimensional associahedra. And what I saw, what I saw was that sitting inside a three-dimensional world of configuration spaces were these two-dimensional beautiful world of configuration spaces at the intersection. This comes completely from an artistic perspective, from my pictures. I was able to see something, and eventually, using this, I was able to prove something that no one had seen or proven before. Well, that day, I asked myself this question. If I can push the frontiers of mathematics with pictures that I myself had drawn, how much more can those who are trained in the visual arts help in pushing the cutting edge of mathematics? For the past five years, I have been thinking seriously about this issue. Indeed, I believe this topic of math and the visual arts is so important that I decided to use our penultimate lecture on this idea. So what are the classical interactions of mathematics and art? Let's take a look at some of them. Here's one, the work of Piero della Francesca in 1460, The Flagellation of Christ. If you see this image, this is one of the greatest works of perspective ever. 
Now notice the converging lines on the floor of the perspective and notice the, the work on the ceiling and the tower to the right side. It beautifully illustrates perspective and geometry and angles in a wonderful way. Here's another example. Marcel Duchamp, nude descending a staircase, work in 1912. Now, Duchamp's perspective here, his, his vision is to show, indeed, space and time, space-time captured together. You see the motion of this nude walking the staircase, but the entire motion is captured. In fact, what we see is the movie on a painting. You see, here's his way of expressing four dimensions. Here's another work, Salvador Dali, Crucifixion, 1954. Now, as a three-dimensional cube that we have talked about can be unfolded into two-dimensional squares, we showed several examples of how to do this. To form a cross, Dali unfolds a four-dimensional cube. Now, as a three-dimensional cube unfolds to make two-dimensional squares, Dali unfolds a four-dimensional cube to make three-dimensional cubes. And here you see Christ on the cross, crucified on these three-dimensional cubes. Now, notice also the projections and patterns on the floor. Again, we see a representation of higher dimensions in this work. Another example is the work by M.C. Escher called Circle Limit 4. And Escher was, a, was an expert with woodcuts and lithographs. And this work is in the, from the 1960s. Now, he is one of the most famous graphic artists in the world, known for his often mathematically inspired and extremely detailed work. Now, mathematically, here what you're looking at is a topological disk. It's a disk with a boundary, something we've looked at throughout these lectures. But notice the geometry on the disk is not a Euclidean geometry, but it's a hyperbolic geometry. Remember the three kinds of geometries we can put on surfaces. It's a hyperbolic geometry where the distances, the geodesics, the shortest paths between two points, cannot be seen as straight lines, but indeed, you see them marked here. They're seen as parts of circles. So all of these markings you see on Escher's work show the shortest path between these two points. Moreover, notice that as we get closer to the boundary of this disk, the scale of distance radically changes. Inside you see the sizes of the angels and the demons, right at the center of the disk, quite large. But as they go away to the boundary, it looks like they're getting smaller. And indeed, they are visually, but the size of them is not changing according to geometry of hyperbolic structures. It's a completely beautiful way of expressing this. This is the work of Escher. Now, unfortunately, I believe these are not good examples of the intersection of math and the visual arts. They're not good examples. Let me explain why. All of these examples we have seen are examples which display math visually. They show it to you visually. New descending the staircase, a visual description of 4D, the unfolding of the 4D cube, the, the presentation of hyperbolic space. Now, they're great tools to get students excited about it. You can say, wow, that's what a four-dimensional unfolded cube looks like. I want to learn more about it. But they do not push the frontier of mathematics. So how can we reclaim the times of Leonardo, where the forefront of math pushes the forefront of art and vice versa. Well, first, let me begin by discussing some artists who I believe have pushed against the boundaries of shape. They've caused us to think about the study of shape differently. And again, these are artists from my perspective and from mine alone, who have, I believe, influenced shape and who have influenced me. Now, it is not an all-inclusive list by any means. 
So let's take a look at some examples. We start with Sol Lewitt. Here's one of his works, Serial Project One. Now Sol Lewitt is known for his works on wall drawings and arrangements of structures. And in this particular case, he plays with one idea. Notice this is a three-dimensional structure. It's a, it's a sculpture design. And on the floor, there's a, there's a grid structure with several different copies of, it looks like skeletal frameworks of cubes and, and, um, and rectangular prisms, some filled in, some not filled in, some small and some big. Indeed, what he was doing was he was playing on all kinds of possibilities that these structures could take place. And he put it in, on the floor for us to actually experience this. Indeed, I believe the kind of work that he does in terms of these ideas, in terms of, um, in terms of looking at the different possibilities of expressing one idea, is looking into the world of configuration spaces. Indeed, he also separated what he is most famous for, and I believe, is that he also separated the idea of the art from the practice of the art. Now, most of his wall drawings, here's an example that you can see here, most of his wall drawings will simply be a set of instructions that he gives to another. And it's their job, the other artists or the other designers, to actually complete his instruction. Here you see his work at the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Now notice on the right side, if we can zoom in to that right side, you see uh, a collection of, uh, of images, boxes, that have very simple curves and lines on those boxes. Below them, you have a code that tells the artist where to draw those boxes in certain combinations. And on the left, the huge piece of work itself has those boxes drawn in different combinations to get these beautiful structures. Indeed, um, Lewitt as an artist, I think he believed the beauty was in the algorithm, the set of instructions, rather than the process of making the work itself. Here's another example that you can see, and this is a wall drawing. Notice here, the set of instructions could possibly have been, draw three points, one at the three corners of the floor, draw points in the centers of the walls, connect them with different lines at these different line segments. And that's something all, that's something, um, that Lewitt would have, would have transcribed to somebody else, and it was their job, or a collection of artists' job, to actually draw this out. Turns out an amazing 25-year-long exhibit of his wall drawings, all contained in a three-story building, covering almost an acre of wall surface, is now open at MassMOCA, the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art. And it's a joint effort with Yale University and WICMA, the Williams College Museum of Art. I highly encourage you, if you're in that area, to take a look. It is breathtaking. Now, another artist who really pushes our struggles with shape and design, I believe, is Anish Kapoor. He's a sculptor. In particular, his work, Cloudgate, at the Millennium Park in Chicago, is one of the most beautiful things I've actually experienced. It's a 110-ton elliptical sculpture of polished stainless steel plates. It is 66 feet long and 33 feet wide, and the idea of curvature and geometry capturing the city's landscape onto a sculpture is beautiful. It is a great way of struggling with and expressing and pushing and using mathematics in a radically stunning way, in a visual way, in a particular setting of a city. Another artist I'm excited about is Joshua Davis. He's a graphics artist. Here's one of his works. It's called Maxalot, and it's from the Once Upon a Forest collection. 
Now, what Joshua does is he uses a program called Adobe Illustrator and he uses his own software program together to create works of art with over 100,000 layers. Something impossible to do by hand, but quite easy to do by a computer. In fact, similar to Lewitt, he takes, a, he takes an idea of a shape and a pattern and color, and he looks at thousands of different combinations that they can create. Beautiful. And finally, we get to Julie Maritou, my favorite artist. She's a MacArthur Grant winner from 2005, and here's one of her works. It's entitled Empirical Construction, Istanbul 2003. Now, her work is based on layering of ideas and of images, trying to depict motion and change and space and structure and history. They are extremely detailed pieces of art where you can actually get lost looking at them. Now, this image that you see here does not do it justice at all. If you have a chance to see her work in person, in the flesh, it will take your breath away. There is an intense sense of movement and space in her work, a new interpretation of shape. Indeed, I see her work in the light of Duchamp, a new descending a staircase. But here, Julie isn't dealing with dimensions like four, but far more. So many pieces of information that she's trying to express in her canvas of layering. Now, we have seen some artists who I believe are pushing the boundaries of our understanding of shape and our depiction and conception of space. But what do things look like from the mathematical perspective? It seems like we've been struggling from the artist's perspective, looking at artists. Well, one reason it's hard to reclaim the times of Leonardo today is actually due to mathematicians. Mathematics is based on rigor and proof and absolutes. And thus, the idea of proofs and visual pictures is very unsettling to many mathematicians. Now, pictures have always been used um, and has been relegated to illustrate an idea. And it's rarely used to prove the idea. So how can we actually use visualization to push cutting-edge mathematics? Well, in the middle of the 20th century, the famous British mathematician John Littlewood wrote, quote, A heavy warning used to be given that pictures are not rigorous. This has never had its bluff called and has permanently frightened its victims. But you see, pictures are a notation, just like equations. The way one uses color and draws the thickness of lines conveys information. It is, in fact, a language similar to equations and numbers. This is what I've been trying to teach you. Some people are great at manipulating numbers. My wife is an example. When we play cards, my wife is the one who keeps score because she's really good at adding. I am not good at adding at all. Another reason she keeps score is because I cheat, but that's a separate story. Some people are also really good at manipulating pictures. Some are gifted at looking at numbers and seeing how they work. Some are gifted at manipulating pictures. But, but the question is, can you get in trouble doing mathematics with pictures to prove something with pictures and presenting proofs? And the answer is, of course you can, but not, but not as much trouble as you can doing math using algebra or equations and numbers. You can be as deceptive in your work using algebra and equations and numbers as you can with pictures. It's just a different tool. Now consider the following examples from our lectures on phylogenetics. Do you remember here we struggled with the idea of taking three particles moving on the circle with three marked points. And we saw those three particles under the naive compactification gave us this three-dimensional simplex, but under the Fulton-McPherson compactification gave us this associohedron. 
Now those three particles, if we arrange it in a different way, we get two particles on an interval and one on this other interval, giving us a triangular prism in the naive compactification. Under the Fulton-McPherson compactification, it became the associohedron. Now the third way is those three particles along the circle, each in its own chamber, own interval, gave us an interval times an interval times an interval, gave us a cube, excuse me, gave us a cube, and under the Fulton-McPherson compactification, they became the associohedron. All of these, which were all different objects, the simplex, the triangular prism, and the cube, all became the associohedron. Well, look at the four-dimensional example. Here we see those four objects, all of them the associohedron. You have four particles on an interval, which give you the four simplex, three particles on an interval with one on a separate interval, triangular prism. Then we have two particles on one interval and one on each, triangle times a square, and finally we have two triangles. All of these objects, very different four polytopes, after the Fulton-McPherson compactification, they become associohedra. And the question is, who says all of these have to become the same associohedron? Who says they're all topologically the same object? And the answer is, I do. I prove this result. And you know what the proof is? The proof is this. It really comes down to this picture of taking my circle with a fixed point, cutting it open, and laying it flat. This picture foundationally proves these results. And I believe this can be done in other parts of mathematics, where visualization, where seeing and experiencing in a visual way, in a pictorial way, actually leads to new mathematical work. So, where do we turn in order to understand where visual arts and the mathematics can push each other? Now, we turn not to classical mathematics, but to the forefront of mathematics as it intersects with visual fields. Let's look at some examples. Origami and pop-up books. Now, these appear in children's pop-up books. You know, have you ever opened a pop-up book and you see beautiful structures come in where origami is designed? There's art here. But a mathematical understanding of shapes needs to be here as well in order to design such books. Now, some of the books, especially those by Robert Sabuda, Matthew Reinhardt, and David Carter, are absolutely stunning, and they're some of my favorites. But what about origami and NASA? You know, the James Webb Space Telescope is designed by NASA, and it's set to launch in 2014. It is a huge telescope, and it's designed to fold up and be placed into a rocket for launch. But how can you take this entire structure and actually fold it up into a rocket for launch? Origami design. Again, we see an artistic gift that is needed, and yet a mathematical understanding of shape that is also needed cutting-edge design. What about origami and stent design, where the folding of origami is used to talk about stents that can be placed inside arteries to open them up and to unclog them? Beautiful work where, again, the intersection of math and art is needed. What about curved origami? Here's an example of a work by David Huffman, who I believe is an absolute genius and who's passed away. This is folded from one sheet of paper. It is curved origami, not straight creases, but beautiful, stunning curves. Even today, we don't know how this works. We know how he particularly created this, but the art, the structure of curved origami is brand new. Imagine the impact to industry and science and nature with the blend of math and art like this. Now, another intersection of math and art, which I believe pushes the forefront of both worlds, is in cartography. 
It is in the blend of math and the visual arts. It needs to be precise enough for calculations and information. This is where the mathematics side comes in, because you're actually conveying information that needs to be true. But on the other side, visually, there's a viewer who's trying to interpret this in information, to see it in a different perspective, to understand this expression of space. The way information is communicated to the viewer, the art side, and the mathematics underlying the information itself, the math side, need to be blended together. Now, let me give you some examples of what I mean. One is cartograms. What are cartograms? Well, cartograms, in a generic sense, can be maps that express area, ex excuse me, express information visually, not focusing on area, but different pieces of information. Let's take a look. This is work by Michael Gassner and Mark Newman. You see here, this map is the map of the United States. The red and the blue show two colored regions of the 2000 United States presidential elections in terms of the Republican and the Democratic Party victories. Now, this is the focus of the map, which we're familiar with, which is emphasizing area. This is how big California is. Notice its size relative to Delaware and notice its size relative to New York or Connecticut. Now, here is a cartogram. Now, notice what has happened. Here, the emphasis is on population density. This is how many people actually there, were there capable of voting, representing electoral votes. Notice here, California has bloated, and certain other states have gotten far bigger, like New Jersey, which we couldn't even see in the first map that much, and now it's become huge due to the population density. Again, the challenge here is to keep this level of population density accurately explained while preserving relative position, while showing that California does need to be next to the states around it. The Texas and Oklahoma should be adjacent as we do this. And it also needs to be a map that the viewer can be familiar with, can identify and say, oh, now I see Illinois. I see how it looked before and after. This is important where art and math meet. Here's another example, metro maps and scale. Let's take an actual map of the London Underground. This is an actual map of the London Underground, the London subway system. From a mathematical viewpoint here is pure and absolute rigor. The distances are exactly right, and this is exactly what's going on underneath the city. Now this map turns out to be actually useless. If you actually want to take the London Underground, this is, this is a mess, because the map is emphasizing all the routes that are around the center of the city. But if you're around the center of the city, you already know where, which subway station you're going to take, which underground you're going to take. It's the center of the city that needs to be emphasized. That's where you have the connections from the orange line to the blue line to the black line to the green line. So we need to look at it from an artistic viewpoint where communication, where artistic communication takes over. So look at this. It's the same map, seen in a completely different way. Again, note the central part of the city is important and everything becomes based on relative position, topology. If an orange line comes below a blue line, originally it needs to come below a blue line here. But look at the angles in which these things take. They've completely been changed into pleasing 90 degrees and 45 degree angles so the viewer can quickly grasp what's going on. This map was actually designed by an electrical engineer, Harry Beck, in 1933, who I believe is a true artist and a scientist. And the map is a classic design. Practically every subway system in the world has been enormously influenced by this work of art. Well, we have seen ideas where the notion of shape and space intersect the world of visualization, diagrams, and art. But how can this interaction be pushed further? Well, something that I believe is needed in schools and universities today is a mathematics laboratory. You see, the sciences have laboratories. 
where the physical, the body, and the mental, the mind meet. Physics has laboratories. Chemists have laboratories. Biologists have laboratories. What about mathematicians? In mathematics, a place is needed to experiment on tangible ideas. We usually have a chalkboard with chalk, and that's it. You see, to have models and drawings is a first step, and we need more to offer a place to invite artists to come so that the days of Leonardo can come back once again now. Well, in this penultimate lecture, we have looked at how mathematics and the visual arts meet. I believe we are at a turning point where math and art will push each other once again to bring back a taste of the Renaissance. We see this in the work of artists like Julie Meritu and Anish Kapoor, as well as in mathematical ideas embedded in origami and cartography. The idea is not to put math and art together in a cheap way, to water down both fields, but a place to honor and value both of them. Now, in our final lecture, we take a look back and we actually step back from what we have done to see where the shape of nature has brought us and where it will take us next. Stay tuned.